0: Welcome to this special ProPass webinar series. We have started the collaboration with ProPass consortium and are publishing their webinars in podcast format so more people can benefit from their useful content. In short, ProPass is an international research collaboration platform of cohorts using Taiwan accelerometry to explore the effects of physical activity, posture, and sleep patterns on a wide range of health outcomes. Without further ado, let's jump to ProPass webinar. I am a member of the PROPASS Working Group and also a professor um, at Loughborough University. So I'm really pleased that you could all join us today. This is our second in our inaugural webinar series as part of the PROPASS consortia. Um, We're really pleased, we had a very successful one. Some of you might have joined it um, last week. This week, we have a really interesting presentation. It's gonna be a bit of a double act between two very good speakers. And it's going to be on the implementation of thigh-worn accelerometry in the 1970 British cohort study. So, just at at this point, I will flag up that we have our last in this mini seminar series. That's going to be happening next week on the on the second of December. So, please do if you haven't already sign up for that one. This will be the the last one in this series, this mini series, but we are planning to do another set in February of 2022. Um, So there will be a link if you haven't already signed up to that, which I think one of my colleagues is kindly going to put in the chat function. So just, uh, I won't spend too much time on this, but just to give a brief introduction to our two great speakers today. First off, we have Matt Brown. He is the senior survey manager at the Centre for Longitudinal Study, and he leads the team responsible for designing the CLS studies. And he also engages with the agencies that are responsible for collecting the data. So, as I mentioned before, he'll be doing a bit of a double act with our colleague, who is also a member of the working group for the ProQuest consortia, Professor Mark Hamer. Um, Mark is a professor in sport and exercise medicine um, at UCL, and he focuses on physical activity and population health. Um, He is a very prolific uh, publisher. You probably recognized his name. He predominantly works with cohort studies, and one of them being the BCS cohort study. So both of them, I think, have worked together. We were just hearing for about six years of fun and games uh, on this cohort, so we're going to be hearing lots about this. Just to let you know how this is all gonna go, we're gonna do roughly around 40 minutes of presenting. Um, There is going to be a bit of back and forth um, passing the baton between the two speakers. Um, At the end, there will be the opportunity to ask questions. It'd be really great to hear some of your voices and have some questions. If you would prefer not to kind of speak at the end with your question, please do feel free to put any questions along the way in the um, chat function and we can read those out at the end. So without further ado, I will pass over to Matt and Mark.
1: OK, thank you, Lauren. Yeah, my name is Matt Brown. I'm Senior Survey Manager at the Centre for Longitudinal Studies. And together with Mark, uh, we're going to tell you about the implementation of one accelerometry in the 1970 British cohort study. So, I'm just going to start off with some acknowledgements. Uh, so, I wanted to acknowledge Professor Alice Sullivan, uh, who was um, director of the BCS 70 study until very recently and was director at the time that we uh, implemented this project. I wanted to acknowledge my colleague Emily Gilbert, who was an integral part of the uh, BCS 70 team, Natsen, who uh, were the fieldwork agency that we worked with on this project. BCS70 participants, of course, and uh, Natalie Pearson, who's with us today, who helped us with crunching the data that we collected to create the the data set that we've made available um, for research. So I just wanted to start off uh, with a few words about the Centre for Longitudinal Studies. So we uh, run four national longitudinal studies all of which aim to follow participants across their lives um, with the broad aim of allowing us to investigate how circumstances and experiences at one stage of life have an impact on later life outcomes. And we run four uh, such longitudinal studies. Uh, The oldest of our studies is the National Child Development Study, which began in 1958. So, participants are now in their 60s. Then we have the 1970 British cohort study, which we're going to be focusing on today, uh, where participants are now in their 50s. The next step study is a cohort following those born in the early 90s. So, participants are now in their early 30s. And our youngest cohort study is the Millennium cohort study, uh, where participants are now in their early 20s. And all of these studies have large samples and are representative of the general population and we're funded as a resource center by the economic and social research council and we're essentially funded to make the data that we collect from all of these studies freely available via the uk data service as a resource for the research community so just a little more about bcs 70 itself so the study began back in 1970 as the british birth survey And at that time, uh, data was collected about the births and families of just over 17,000 babies, essentially all babies, born in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland in one week in 1970. And since then, the cohort has been followed up roughly every five years uh, throughout childhood and on into adulthood. And at present, we're currently conducting the 10th follow up of the study um, now that participants are aged fifty one we've collected over the course of the study's life information from the study members themselves um, during uh, their childhood we collected extensive information from their parents and also their teachers medical ac- medical examinations um, have been conducted and we've also collected lots of information via record linkage as well and the study's really focused on collecting information about health and physical uh, educational and social development economic circumstances, and and many other aspects of life. So medical examinations, as I mentioned, were a feature of the childhood sweeps, but from 16 onwards, all of the information that we've collected about health has been based on self-reports until the age 46 survey, which we conducted between 2016 and 2018. And with funding from the Medical Research Council and the British Heart Foundation, uh, we were able to conduct a um, in-depth biomedical follow-up at age 46, which involved a 50-minute face-to-face interview um, and a 50-minute nurse um, visit, which involved a series of objective biomeasures. Um, In addition to that, we also ran a online diet questionnaire and a paper questionnaire. So in total, we conducted around eight and a half thousand interviews as part of the age 46 survey and conducted seven and a half thousand nurse visits. So the nurse visit involved the collection of um, measures of anthropometry, height, weight, and body fat. Um, We collected some measures of cardiovascular health, um, so blood pressure, uh, measures of physical performance, so grip, strength and and balance. And we also collected blood samples, which we've analysed for a whole range of different analytes. And uh, we're just now in the process of extracting um, DNA from the blood samples, uh, so that we can um, genotype the samples and um, and make that data available for genetic research. And then, of course, importantly, we also included an objective measure of physical activity um, as part of this sweep as well so i'm going to hand over to mark now who's going to tell he's going to introduce uh this um section and tell you a little bit more about that
2: um, thanks very much matt um so i'm gonna sort of talk in a bit more depth about the xorontari data um i think all of you are from a, I, i'm guessing that all of you are from a a physical activity background, so you all appreciate the importance of why we need to collect physical data in some of these large cohort studies. Um, but historically, we have collected these type of data using self-reported instruments. And we sort of came to the realization that these types of uh, data do have um, limitations to, to them. And I think in particular, the questionnaires we've typically used in the past are pretty good. Well, they're, they're largely designed to capture um, structured forms of exercise, sport and activity. But what we, what we certainly miss are those um, activities that form part of everyday living, um, which are actually very challenging to recall. Um, so that's our uh, next slide, please, Matt. That's one of the reasons why over the last sort of 10, fifteen years, there has been a move towards integrating um, devices into uh, some of these low uh, large cohort studies. Uh, this is a slide that simply summarizes some of the key cohort studies from the UK that have adopted devices over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, you will I'm sure you some of you will be um, very familiar with some of these studies. Um, But what's interesting is really the range of different devices that have been used across these studies. And I think there are some good reasons for that. Uh, Back in 2008 with House Over England, I think this was probably one of the very early adopters of accelerometry. And uh, like all all of us at that time, they adopted this waist-mounted actigraph. But I think uh, in more contemporary studies, the, the device of choice has certainly been either wrist-worn or, or uh, thigh-worn. And I think there's a, a number of uh, reasons for that, which I'm going to go into in a bit more depth. Um, so I think there's a big difference when you decide to do accelerometry at large scale compared to when you are doing it at you know smaller scale, sort of in a, in, in a lab-based study. Um, one of the key aspects of a cohort is that Ideally, you want your participants to stay in the study for many years. Um, so when you're introducing a new measure, you you want to make sure that they're happy with it and it's not going to be uh, too arduous for them to complete uh, because otherwise there's a very good chance that they will simply uh, drop out of the study, which which is, is the last thing that, that, that you want. So I think comfort and compliance is... Um, extremely important when you're deciding what device to use uh, at large scale. Another issue is that over the years, we have slowly moved towards a 24-hour twenty-four, wear, 24 hour wear protocol. As I said, initially, when we started this in back in 2008 with HSC, we used a protocol where participants took the device off before they went to bed. Uh, but for various reasons, we've certainly now move toward this 24 seven wear protocol. So again, your device choice is really important if you want participants to wear this dev- thing for, for, for the full 24 hours. I think a, a, a final really key issue is about data storage and data volume. Um, different devices provide you with different types of size of file. Anyone that's used the Genie Active, for example, knows that the files it produces are generally um, very large, particularly if you collect data at that higher level of frequency. Whereas the Actigraph and the ActivePal are, are relatively uh, smaller uh, sizes of, of files, which are, you know, when you're collecting uh, these data from five to, to 10,000 people. Um, data volume is it's starting to become a really uh, key issue. So we, what we opted for uh, in BCS-70 was the active PAL. And um, I think in addition to some of the issues I've already mentioned, we were also had a key research question which revolved around sedentary time. And at the time that we were designing this uh, back in, well, nearly 10 years ago, we, we were actually designing this study at that time, the active pal, the Thigh One Active Pal was really the gold standard for capturing sitting time because of this uh, postural technique it uses. So that was one of the key reasons we went for it. Um, but also the fact that, as I've said, the Active Pal in terms of data storage is, is, is relatively low compared to other types of devices we see in the market at the moment. Um, and it is a device that can be worn uh, 24-7, um, w- w- without too much discomfort. So um, this, is, this is our basic protocol. Um, I think the most important part of this protocol is that we asked the participants to, once the device was on, we asked them not to take it off. Um, and that was based on Seb Chastin's protocol that he used in the senior USP trial. One of the the kind of the concepts behind this protocol is that if you use this protocol, you can sort of make the uh, fairly reasonable assumption that there isn't going to be any non wear time because again, in the past non wear time has has caused us a lot of issues in terms of the analysis so we we used adopted this protocol where we said to participants, "If you do want to take it off, please don't put it back on so the nurse essentially. Um, visited participants in their own homes Um, the nurse initiated the device Um, we did this actually through uh, some software that that we we designed ourselves to to integrate it into the interview module and and Matt will just touch on that a a bit later in more detail the nurse then placed the device um, and then participants were asked to wear the device for seven days and then uh, pop it back in a prepaid envelope, um, which was sent back to us. So, in, in in addition to the device, they also completed a seven day sleep diary, which I will uh, talk about in a moment. Um, we then provided them with a summary feedback. So, in terms of the actual analysis, and this is going to bring back some painful memories for Natalie, I think, uh, because Nat- Natalie was the person who who crunched the the, the data. Um, so I think the most time-consuming aspect was actually converting the, the DATX files into these event files so that we could process them through uh, Charlotte Edwardson's software. Um, and this software has been uh, well-validated. And if you're interested to look at that, um, this is published in the Winkler paper uh, from back in 2016. So this is an example of the feedback that we generated for each participant. Um, it's It's obviously, it's pretty crude. Um, this is designed so that, um, you know, the participant can easily understand it. Um, it's got a step count for every day. It's got your time spent in sitting uh, and in upright activity. And then it's got a line time, which uh, equates to really time in bed, which again, I'm going to pick up that later on because um, we've actually looked at that in relation to the sleep diary. So this is our flow of participants into the study. Um, as Matt said, we approached um, just under 7,500 participants to wear the device, um, 6,500 consented and we were left with 5,500 of provided usable data. One of the main reasons that we lost data was because the devices were not returned to us, um, whether that be they were lost in the post or they simply weren't returned. So in terms of our return rates, we got back 92% uh, in relation to those that were placed, devices that were placed. Um, In terms of compliance, um, this is number of days. So you can see that just over 80% gave us data from at least five days, um, which, which is pretty good. So this is just some reasons for why people actually refuse to wear the device. Most of them are sort of f- fairly um, fairly vague. Um, I think the key thing here that we were pleased with was that a relatively low proportion of people had concerns about wearing the device um, on their skin. And I think at the beginning of the study, that was a real worry for us that um, people would be worried uh, about having this this device in their skin for seven days. So this is just a comparison of characteristics of participants that did consent and those that did not. Um, and I don't think there's anything particularly surprising here. Um, the people, the participants that did consent, were uh, slightly more likely to be degree educated. They were um, probably in better health, uh, less likely to be in that obese category, less likely to report a disability. And in terms of, this is a similar sort of comparison, but this is in relation to wear period. So this is a comparison of people that um, didn't wear the device uh, for very long compared to those that wore it for at least three days. Um, again, the people that wore the device for a longer period were slight, slightly more likely to be degree educated um, and they were healthier again. So they are less, uh, less likely to report poor health. Um, they were, had a lower prevalence of obesity. What is interesting is, is there were some seasonal differences here as well. So if we placed a device in the winter and spring, um, people were probably more likely to wear it for a longer period um, relative to if we placed that device in the summer. Um, so this is just a comparison of wear compliance across different studies. Um, and this is a, a comparison I've done across uh, Senior USP, which is a study from Scotland led by Seb Chastin. Um, walking away from diabetes, which is based at Leicester, um, with Charles Edward Simon and, and Tom Yates, and then we have at the end um, Oz Diab from uh, Australia. Um, you can see that the BCS70 uh, sort of wear compliance is very similar to uh, WAD and Oz Diab. I think the the one outlier here is senior USP, which had incredible compliance, wear compliance. And I think there's probably two reasons for that. Um, Firstly, senior USP actually got a researcher to return back after seven days to pick up the device. Um, So it's possible that if you take this approach, people uh, might be more likely to kind of try to wear the device for Uh, as much time as as possible but secondly senior usp um their participants were significantly older than any of these other cohorts so it may be that these older adults are simply better at adhering to the instructions Um, but in in any case i I think the the where compliance be sent to was was very comparable and we were pretty pretty happy with it um so this is just a very uh, basic descriptives from the ActivePAL data in men and women. Um, Actually, the data in men and women are pretty identical. Um, You can see that um, average sitting time is around about nine hours. Both men and women recorded uh, on average around about 50 minutes of MVPA per day. To derive MVPA, we use this cut point of um, 100 uh, on cadence um, from the Tudor lock paper that was recently published a few years ago. Uh, this is just a breakdown of how sitting was accumulated. So 50% of sitting was accumulated in very short bouts of up to 30 minutes. And then we have 25% of sitting um, in bouts of 30 to 60 minutes. And then the remaining 25% was accumulated in longer bouts of 60 minutes or more. Um, so prolonged bouts of sitting. And this is some descriptives in relation to tertiles of sitting time. So men were more likely to record high proportions of sitting. um, And also the high sitters were more likely to be degree educated, which presumably suggests that obviously degree educated are more likely to have a professional job that involves sitting um, in front of a computer. But then in terms of health, um, the high sitters were more likely to be reporting poorer health. Uh, there was a higher prevalence of obesity in this high sitting group, uh, diabetes, and hypertension. So, I've just got a few slides left, and this is we just want to show you some comparisons we did between the device and the self report, both in terms of MVPA and sleep. Um, this first slide. It uh, probably won't come as any real surprise because it's very consistent with all the literature. Um, we used the um, Cambridge Physical Activity Questionnaire, the EPAC 2 to assess um, physical activity, uh, MVPA. Um, you can see that with that self-report, the the average sort of MVP was approaching six hours a week with our monitor, it was a lot higher. It was around about eight and a half hours. Um, I think the, the kind of interesting thing about this is that as we have moved towards this sort of 24-hour wear protocol, I think we have started to uh, measure a lot more sort of incidental activity. And I think my take on this is that that's why we see this quite large uh, difference. Um, the correlation, incidentally, is is around about 0.24, which, as I said, I I think that's pretty consistent with existing literature. And we just looked to see whether this correlation um, was different among different groups of people. So, just to summarise this, in in women, the correlation between device and self-report is a little bit higher than in men. Um, In people that are degree educated, again, the correlation is a little bit higher. Um, People that are not reporting depressive symptoms, the correlation is a bit higher. Um, And in those that wear the device for more days, the correlation is a little bit higher. And again, I think this is fairly consistent with some similar data that Whitehall 2 have have published. So the last thing I'm gonna mention is, is, a paper we've recently published and um, um, just want to acknowledge um, Ileif from Sydney who, who led this paper. Um, this is a comparison of the device versus the sleep diary. And I think it's important to say that the, the algorithm that we used to derive sleep from the device is not really biological sleep, it's, it's time in bed um so with the sleep diary we asked people what time they went to bed what time they went to sleep then when they got up and when they woke up um so not surprisingly we we got fairly good agreement between time in bed between the diary and the device and um, but you know possibly unsurprisingly when we look at actual sleep correlation between uh, the device and the diary then the, that that agreement isn't not as good, um, but as I said, we the device doesn't measure sleep per se; it measures time in bed. And these are some bland Altman plots. Um, they're probably a little bit too small for this slide, actually. Um, the important thing to note here is the green lines, because these are the uh, what we'd say they're clinically acceptable levels of agreement within plus or minus thirty minutes. And actually about 50% of the sample are probably outside of these levels of agreement. Um, But this is probably due to the reasons I've talked about in that the device is not actually measuring sleep per se. It's simply estimating the time that people are in bed. And I think, Matt, I think it's back to you now. Uh, Yes. Yes, it is.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast.